0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. How about as we look into God's word together, we pray. So let's do that now. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we ask for your spirit to be at work in us, helping us to understand your word, helping us to apply it to our lives, helping us, Lord, to put off our old selves and put on the new. And we pray that we will continue to do this as your followers, now and always. Amen. Well, when was the last time you thought about how things have changed? Because this week's topic is, that was then, this is now. Now, for example, who came to church today in a Horse and Sulky? No? No one? Hmm. It's not actually that strange, is it? No one does that anymore. That was then. This is now. Um, anyone use a carrier pigeon to send messages? No, again. Oh, it's very, no, it's not strange at all, is it? Look, that was then, this is now. Horse and sulky's not really a thing anymore. Carrier pigeon's also not really a thing. We've got new technologies, new things that have taken place in the last century or so uh, that mean that these old ways of life are no longer relevant. But I wonder if maybe there are other things that aren't just technological that are going to change the way we live, change our society, change things for the better, perhaps. Well, I do think that there's one example Uh, we've got here in our passage today, and it's Jesus. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Jesus is the guy who came 2,000 years ago and changed Middle Eastern and Greek culture dramatically. And we can see the impact that Jesus has had on our own culture even today, thousands of years later. And this is where Paul's going. Uh, last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul's, uh, Paul tells us to live up to the calling that we've received. Uh, so we are God's children and we are people who have been saved by grace through faith, chapter 2. Uh, God's plan has existed since before the beginning of the world to save us in chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 3, we're looking at unity, working together, harmony as in the church. Uh, we're looking at how then now should we live as Christians together in church uh, last week, we saw a bit about how that would look. Each person using their own gifts to build up the church. Uh, each one of us, we are one, working together, but we are many, using many different gifts. And this week, we're going to see how being a Christian is going to shape not just our lives in the church, but our lives in all areas. That was then, when we were not Christians, we lived in one way, perhaps. And now that we are Christians, we live in a different way. And maybe it's hard for us in our culture today to see the difference. Maybe not. I think increasingly we're finding that Christians are standing out more. Uh, But obviously, very different in the very first century of the Christian faith. Uh, Their culture in that day was dramatically different to what Paul and no doubt Jesus himself spoke of. So this is why Paul starts here in verse 17, and he says, So I tell you this and insist on it. This is not negotiable, friends. He's insisting that we pay attention. You must not live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. Darkened in their understanding is a pretty serious thing, isn't it? Uh, Would you want to follow someone who hasn't got a clue what's going on? Someone who doesn't actually see things as they are. It's not a very positive approach, is it? Uh, What else do they do? Uh, They're giving themselves over to sensuality, indulging in all kinds of impurity. They're full of greed. This is by no means an exhaustive list. If you wanted to look into the ancient Greek culture of the day, no doubt we could find many things to criticise. Paul's just kind of giving us a a broad summary. A, they're blind, they don't know what they're doing, their thinking is darkened. Uh, Don't follow them. Don't live like them. Their hearts are hard. They've lost all sensitivity. There's nothing good about this description of the non-Christian. And sometimes it's hard for us in our culture to look at those around us who aren't Christians and not be a bit jealous. It looks like maybe the non-Christians have got a better life than what we do. Uh, We might think, oh, they've got it made. They've got a great house, great family, tons of money. Everything's going really well for them. Their lives are fantastic. If only I didn't waste my time coming to church on a Sunday. But if you look at the description that Paul gives of them, There's nothing to be envious about. And Paul says that that was true for all of us before we were Christians. And so now that we are Christians, that's got to change. We're to think differently because we are different. We've been made alive in Christ in chapter 2, chapter 3 again, and chapter 4, expanding on what it would look like for us to be saved and made part of God's family. Remember this idea in the ancient world, like father, like son? Again, that's kind of where we're going. And Paul's writing to an openly hostile society, a society that hated Christians. In fact, a society that worshipped many gods, and in fact, even the Roman emperor. Many considered him to be a god, the god emperor of mankind from Rome. And the Ephesians, no doubt, were involved in a lot of this, And we know from the book of Acts, as Paul starts the church in Ephesus, there's a riot because he's taking business away from those who worship Artemis, the Greek goddess. And so life in Ephesian society would be quite different from our own in some ways, but also kind of similar in others. Uh, There was a society in which temple prostitution was normal. Human sacrifice was also a feature in some places. Uh, Bloody entertainment in the Colosseums meant that life was cheap. Uh, there was no social security or care for widows and orphans. It was up to the individuals to care for their own family members. Uh, and it's a pretty rough and ready kind of world to live in. If someone found themselves without a family or without a job, uh, poverty would ensue almost certainly. A worship of many gods is commonplace, as we heard. Ephesus was the place of worship for Artemis and other gods. In short, sex was cheap, life was cheap, Poor and needy people were often left out. And so I imagine this conversation between a Christian and his non-Christian neighbor in Ephesus. And it's made up, but you just got to use your imaginations. Uh, So the non-Christian starts the conversation a bit like this. You know, two neighbors over the back fence, not that that happens much anymore, but it used to. He says, ''Hi, Andrew, I didn't see you down there at the Saturnalia Festival.'' Uh, he says, oh, no, uh, the Christian says, I don't worship that god. Uh, so I just didn't go to that thing to honor him and, and worship him. And his neighbor says, oh, well, which god do you worship? Is it Mars or Hermes or Venus or Artemis? Which? And he says, no, none of them. And his neighbor goes, what? You don't worship any of those gods? Well, you, you're crazy or something. What's wrong with you? You're an atheist or something. He says, no, it's this other God, this guy, Jesus. He says, what? I've never heard of that. That sounds crazy. Well, look, I'm sure whatever God is, you'll be able to worship him down at the temple prostitutes. I'm sure there'll be a shrine there and a prostitute dedicated to your God. Would you like to perhaps go worship him there? And the Christian says, no, I don't think I will. I don't think my God would actually like that. And again, his neighbor says, what? What? Are you insane? Everybody worships down there. It's great. Everyone has a good time. Surely your God would approve if you're having fun. Surely your God would approve of that. And his neighbor says, no, I don't think so. I don't think that is what my God wants. And he says, all right, well, I don't know what to do with you. You're weird. But all right, on to less controversial topics. I hear your wife's pregnant. And the Christian says, yeah, yeah, we're expecting a baby. Uh, And his neighbor says, well, just uh, to let you know, my wife has spoken to your wife, and she's offered to help just kind of take the baby away and throw it out if it's a girl, leave it out in the bush to die. And, you know, would that be okay? And he's expecting a yes answer because that's what everyone did. And the Christian neighbor says, no, no, even if it's a girl, we're going to keep it. And his neighbor says, what? Everybody kills their baby girls. They're hopeless. What is wrong with you? What kind of God do you worship? Now, this does seem a bit strange, but that's literally life in first-century Greece. The conversation would have probably happened along those lines with a Christian and a non-Christian. They're at poles apart. The Christian way of life is so vastly different to the world around them that there were probably people who thought they were crazy, As they put off that old way of life and put on the new way of life, it will look different. So too for us. We must be different because God has made us different. We've gone from dead to alive. And we've gone from far away to near, in fact so near, that God adopted us into his family. He treats us as his children. And so... Paul says we've got to take out the old way of life in verses 20 to 24, a bit like we saw with Phil and his old clothes. We've got to get rid of them, put on the new ones instead. Uh, We once might have worked for KFC or something, and now we're working at McDonald's and we've got to get rid of that old uniform. That's not appropriate here anymore. Uh, Those two are at odds. They're competing worldviews. The Ephesians would have thought about that at, at the time, and it would have been a real challenge to stand out from the society in which they live, to demonstrate vastly different behaviours. There's not one area of life that the Christian shouldn't have Jesus at the centre of. So as Paul goes on to explain this, taking off the old and putting on the new, really he's saying that that's kind of emulating him. They didn't come to know Jesus through the kind of behaviours that he outlined earlier. (laughs) Now, Paul didn't show them that way of life when he was with them. In fact, he showed them a very different way of life, and that's the one that they need to put on. In verse 22, they're living a new life because that's what God has given them. And as Christians, it's like that with us too. God has given us that same new life, that same opportunity to be part of his family the same opportunity to have our hearts and minds renewed by God's Spirit. Our same way of life just can't exist in this Christian environment. That's why Paul is adamant and he insists on it that we don't live like the non Christians do. So that was then, and this is now, and you might think that as a Christian, It's hard to stand out from the crowd and it is hard to put off that old self and there's an element of truth to it. And sometimes as we think about our own society, I imagine a conversation between a Christian and a non-Christian, not 2,000 years ago but today or at least in the very near future. Non-Christian again, talking to his Christian neighbour over the back fence. I know it's fiction but it's deal with it. The non-Christian says, hey, uh, Mick, I didn't see you down in the pub yesterday. And he says, oh, no, I just didn't really want to go and get drunk. And he says, oh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? You're know, you unwell. Is there health problems or something? He says, no, no, it's more just my God doesn't really like that. And he's like, well, that's a bit weird. I mean, what kind of God doesn't like parties? All right. Um, all right, well, uh, you're going to come to the uh, the Pride Festival tonight. LGBTQI plus everything, it's going to be great. There'll be a DJ and a parade and everyone's going to have a great time. And he says, no, I don't think I'll go to that either. And he goes, what? You want to go to that? Okay, all right, well, that's weird. You're a strange guy, but anyway, you don't want to be on the right side of history or you don't want to be thought of as a bigot or anything like that. And he says, well, not really, I just want to do what God wants. And the guy's like, that's weird. That's weird. What kind of God doesn't support love and parties? All right, well, on to less controversial topics then, I guess. Um, I hear your wife's pregnant again. Yeah, that's right. That's great. Oh Well, um, have you made that abortion appointment yet? And he says, no. And his neighbor says, why not? You've got three kids already. Don't you? That's enough, isn't it? And he says, no, we're going to keep this one too. And his neighbor says, What? Haven't you thought about overpopulation and the climate? And what kind of weird, sick kind of person are you? But that's the reality of the world in which we're living. Our society is running about as fast away from God as you can imagine. It's running full pelt away from everything that God says is good and towards indulging in all these things that Paul tells us not to indulge in. People around us are darkened in their understanding. Their hearts are hardened. They are not people to emulate. That's Paul's point, that we are going to live as Christians in this environment here and now because it's very similar to what existed 2,000 years ago. That was then, but this is now. And I'm going to tell you, friends, our society is not much different in many ways. We've been made new. Adopted into God's family, living a new life which gives us new attitudes towards all kinds of things sex, money, family, work, friendship, God, all kinds of areas of life where we're going to come across a very different approach to life to the world around us. So that was then, and perhaps they were attitudes that we once had before coming to faith, but the time for them is up. We take them off, and we cast them aside. And we put on our new selves, selves that are being renewed daily. So what does it look like then if we're going to get rid of all of that, put on something new and good? Well, Paul gives us some examples from verses 25 onwards. And every time he gives us an example, he gives us both a positive and a negative at once. Put off this, but put on that. So it's a bit like what Phil said. It's not just put off the old and do nothing, It's put off the old and put on the new. So there's a negative and a positive all at once. So Paul says put off falsehood, get rid of that. But what do you do instead? Well, you put on what? Truthfulness, being honest, changing old dirty clothes, getting rid of that one that says lying is okay, and we're putting on a new one that says telling the truth is the way to go. And then what do we do? Uh, We've got these other examples. Paul, interestingly, says, in your anger, do not sin. I want to clarify something, though. Uh, Being angry isn't a sin. God himself is rightfully angry. Jesus himself gets angry at the temple collection people. He turns the tables over uh, and he gets righteously angry about things. But be careful. It's easy for us to sin when we are angry. It's easy for us to do something that we should not do because we're hot under the collar. You can be angry, and I think rightly so. There's tons of things in the world that should make us angry. People sometimes do things that make us angry. In fact, if you think about it, you probably do things that make other people angry. I do. I do. But it's not in and of itself a sin to be angry, but it's dangerous territory. So Paul gives us advice, don't go to bed while you're still angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you've got an issue with someone, try to resolve it that day. Try not to let it kind of fester and brew and and become worse over time. And he uses a great phrase, don't give the devil a foothold. You know, it's as if you're kind of on top of a cliff far away from the devil. And it's pretty hard to get to you from there, but if you're going to let these things fester and over time they're going to become worse, what you're doing is you're letting the devil kind of get a foothold to climb up that mountain to get to where you are. And so that's why I think Paul focuses on anger because it's, it's tricky ground. It It opens us up for all kinds of problems if it's not handled with properly. The same could be said for all kinds of other emotions. It's not wrong to be emotional. It's not wrong to have emotions. God gave us emotions. He made us humans who experience emotions. Emotions are okay. You can have emotions. Blokes, that includes us. Hunger and anger and tired, that's about it sometimes. That's what we think emotions are. But there are a whole range of them. And Paul is very clear, it can be dangerous ground. So be careful. Don't let the devil get a foothold. Now, verse 28, he says, don't steal, don't cheat people, don't take advantage of them for your own gain. Now, this is pretty straightforward in our culture. I don't think there'd be too much pushback. I Think broadly. Most people, even in our secular society, would say that's appropriate. But especially for those of us in the church, especially those of us who proclaim Jesus as our Lord. It's important for us to let other people know that we care. It's not just a matter of don't steal from people. It's actually a command to do good to them. It's not just don't steal. It's a proactive, be generous, be good to others. And so verse 29, get rid of all of the unwholesome talk. And I know sometimes we like to joke and muck around But sometimes I'm even guilty of saying something I shouldn't say. Sometimes I don't necessarily think about the consequences too far in front. But Paul's encouragement is to get rid of the unwholesome talk. And what do we do instead? We're going to build each other up. Uh, Speak words of affirmation and life to one another. Encourage one another. Help one another. And verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, God has given us the Holy Spirit to live in us. Let's not make... God's sad. Don't grieve him in our sin. Remember, Jesus is the one who died for us. So even if we do fall into sin, it's not as if we can't be saved. If we do find ourselves going back to our old way of life sometimes, don't be surprised. We still are sinners, saved by grace. But remember, also, try and help prevent that. Remember that the Holy Spirit can be grieved with what we say and do. Verse 32, of course, being kind and compassionate, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. So remembering how much Christ has forgiven me gives me a bit of an incentive to forgive others. Yes, no matter what it is that someone has done, Christ forgives them. Could we not take that approach? We think, oh, well, you know, some things can't be forgiven. But that's not true at all. Christ has forgiven us our every sin, past, present, and future, we got to extend that same grace to one another. If somebody wrongs us, we have got to be ready to give them the same forgiveness that Jesus gives to us. So remembering that Christ is going to shape our every area of life, including how we relate to one another, uh, including how we relate to our neighbors and our friends and those who are in the rest of society, it really means that we're going to be different. And we have to expect to see a difference. And if you want to see the difference that the gospel makes to a society and to individual people, look no further than the little country near ours called Vanuatu. Uh, we visited there a couple of years ago, and after we visited Beth and I and Jessica, Uh, I read the biography of a guy who you can see on screen there, John Gibson Patton, the first uh, successful kind of missionary who went to the island of Tanna in the south of Vanuatu there. Uh, The natives in that location, the Nivan people, were cannibals. There had been other attempts at missionaries going to that location and all had been killed and eaten, which makes you wonder why John wanted to go there in the first place. But he did. And he faithfully carried out God's task of sharing the gospel with the locals. Uh, The people there at the time practiced infanticide, widow sacrifice. Uh, They would kill the babies if they didn't want them. And if a husband died, they would kill the wife so the wife could go be with him in the afterlife. It's very considerate, lovely. But John stayed there and he wasn't killed in Eden, although he faced a lot of suffering and persecution. Uh, When we look at the success that he had, It had nothing to do with him and everything to do with God. As we read his biography, uh, I was stunned at at the difference it made in just a short space of time, about 100 years or so. Uh, And it's stunning that when we went there, we were welcomed with open arms. The villagers were friendly. People were very happy to have us. They welcomed us and were very kind and we had a great time. But only a hundred odd years ago, they would have probably tried to kill us and eat us. You know why that changed is the gospel. John, in his autobiography, writes this. All the skepticism of Europe would hide its head in foolish shame, and all its doubts would dissolve under one glance of the new light that Jesus, and Jesus alone, pours from the converted cannibal's eye. Converting to Christianity for the local people on Tanner, was very difficult. They faced opposition and hardship, but the difference is night and day. The difference that the gospel has made to the lives of the people there is stunning. And it's because people were willing to be different, willing to stand out from the crowd, willing to put off the old self with all its practices and put on the new. So each of us need to consider that following Christ isn't just something that we do for an hour or so when we get together on Sunday, but it's all of life. That's what Paul's talking about. Being a Christian is not an hour-a-week activity, but an all-of-life commitment. Each of us needs to examine ourselves and consider which of those areas of the old self am I struggling to put off? Which of those things can I ask Jesus to help me? And remember, of course, we're all in this together. We have a church community in which we all work together, uh, sharpening one another, encouraging one another, helping one another to put off the old and put on the new. Uh, Christianity is an all-of-life activity, and it's also not an individual pursuit but a team sport. We're all members of the one body working together, serving Christ on mission, all of life, with all of us. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the huge difference that it made to the lives of those first Christians who were willing to take off their old lives and put on the new. Help us, Lord, be willing to do the same. Help us be the people who take off all those things that are not pleasing to you in our lives and surrender them to Jesus. Help us, Lord, continue to be your people in all areas of life and all together. Help us to do this, we pray. Amen.